Resurrection freedom, amen. We'll be talking a little bit more about that freedom next Sunday. And we'll talk about it a little bit today, but it's a freedom that comes from salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only place to find that resurrection freedom. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you will go ahead and open them to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Once you have turned there, if you would please stand as we'll read a portion of our scripture this morning and then we'll begin to look at the genealogy of the gospel. Well, let's start Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Poseidon, Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, motioning with his hands. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray for the next few moments, Lord, that you would remove any distraction. And Lord, that you would help us to hear from you. Father, you would help me step aside, Lord, and then you would speak through me. And that those here today, Lord, would hear you, and they would listen to what you have to say. And Father God, I just pray everything in the precious, most holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin looking today, we're shifting areas that they are spreading the gospel in. As Luke is writing, they had been at that one area. Now they have traveled 180 miles again by sea from Cyprus to Perga. But that wasn't their final destination on this portion of the trip. They then began walking by foot another 100 miles to Poseidon Antioch and they crossed over the Taurus Mountain. I would think in my mind that these are some people that are pretty committed and dedicated to what they're trying to do because they're going by sea and traveling over these mountains by foot. I can't imagine walking that amount of distance and crossing over that, but they did what is customary here for Paul. If you notice, they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He always went to the town, and remember we said last week, the first thing he would do would go and speak with the Jews. He would go and present their message. So we see that he went on the Sabbath day into the synagogue and he sat down. And then the synagogue service would begin and they talked about the Old Testament and the prophets and then they would have some other readings that they would do. And then toward the end, there would be a portion where someone would get up and they would do an exhortation or they would begin to talk about the scriptures that had been read in that day as it mentioned there from the the prophets and the law the first five books or some call it the torah 
But it was very common in that day that if there was a Jewish believer or a rabbi that was visiting or someone of Jewish authority, they might be invited to speak. Well, I'm sure they knew who Paul and Barnabas was. And after they got into that point, they sent a message inviting them to come if they would like to speak or exhort, thank you, into what had been said. And of course, Paul, being who Paul is, he's not going to miss an opportunity to share the gospel. But Paul also was a very wise and smart man because he knew what was important to these Jews. And that's their genealogy. We've talked about this before with some of the Sanhedrins and the other rabbis. The Jews would boast of their lineage and to follow the genealogy all the way back to their, their fathers, uh, Isaac, Abraham, and Moses, and David, and all of these people that were in their history was very important to them. So what best does Paul do when he has the opportunity to share but he's going to throw that bait out there and he's going to hook them with their genealogy. But what he, they don't understand is their genealogy is the genealogy of the gospel. You know, we talk about the gospel and we always think of Jesus when we think of the gospel. But from the very beginning of time, the first part of scripture that we even read in Genesis, is describing the gospel. God was setting it up from the very beginning. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. It talks about, we know he created a perfect garden. You know, God created a perfect world. Adam and Eve lived in it, and Adam and Eve did what every one of us has done, and they sinned. And because that sin entered in, death was a requirement to cover that. So even in there, we begin to see about sin and consequence and payment for that to be restored. And we go all throughout Scripture seeing that. So he wants to begin with giving them the history of Christ, the history before Christ came. Let's take a look there as we see him do that, beginning in verse 16. He says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it for a, a period of about 40 years. He put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After seeing these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David, 
to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So he began with giving this history before Christ and talking about how God chose the people Israel to be his chosen people. God chooses people to be his. Some of you might say, hold on just a minute, preacher. So you're saying God determines who goes to heaven and hell? Well, in a way and in a way not. Follow me through. God chose Israel. They become the Jewish nation. We're going to hear in just a moment how they rejected his son. When his son went to the cross, Scripture tells us that he died for all. God's chosen are all people, but not all will receive him. And you know, the ones that go to hell are the ones who reject the gospel. It's a punishment for rejecting that. How could a loving God do that, I've been asked. My question is, how can a perfect and loving God not? He has provided the way, as long as you make him Lord and Savior of your life, if you reject him, he already told you from the beginning what would happen. So we began seeing how God chose the people of Israel. God allowed them even under persecution and in slavery in Egypt to grow and to multiply and to become such a great nation that the king there even began putting more persecution on them. And then we see once again where God delivered them from the hand of Egypt you see this working? They rebel against him. We go into slavery. God provides a way. They traveled in the wilderness for 40 years. They could have got to the promised land. They could have went into the land of Canaan and inherited that long before 40 years, but they rejected what God told them. So for 40 years, they wandered out in the wilderness until that wicked, as the Bible says, that wicked generation died off and the new ones come up that were willing to follow the Lord. And then God gave them the land of Canaan. God destroyed, it said, those seven nations that were there. What were they? You can look in Deuteronomy 7.1, but I'll tell you, it was the Hittites the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all those ites. Might have been like mites in their day, you know. But God delivered the people who were willing to follow and gave them the land. Yes, they went in and destroyed it, but if you'll read, oftentimes we always see how it was done in a way that God gets the glory and no one else. God is the one, and Jesus is telling them all that they knew, and it said that it took 450 years. Well, if you calculate out, he said about 450 years. The Israelites were in captivity 400 years in Egypt. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, 
and about seven years conquering the land of Canaan. That's 47. He said about 450 years. So he's saying, listen here. He's in the synagogue with the Jews, and he is telling them what they already know, what they should already know. They hear this every week. And he's presenting to them the history before Christ. How, and they know how all of this was building up to something. And then he changes and he goes into the history of Christ. Let's take a look there beginning at verse 23. From the descendants of this man, talking about David, according to the promise God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, Sons of Abraham, family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. And though they found no ground to putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. There's that resurrection power. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the Holy One and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also sang another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But whom God raised did not go under decay. So he very quickly, in a a matter of moments, began describing the history of Christ. Now, we don't have every word of what was said. The, The highlights were recorded. And he began again talking a little bit about the Old Testament. He was referring back to what they would call the Amadah. That was something that would be read. There were 18 benedictions. And every Sunday they would read these benedictions. And the 15th one, which had just been read prior in the service, let me read to you what it would have said. It said, speedily cause the branch of your servant David to flourish. Exalt his horn by your salvation, because we hope for your salvation all the day. Blessed are you, O Lord, who calls the horn of salvation to flourish, is what one of the commentaries said. They hear this week after week. 
So he's presenting this genealogy to people who hear it, but yet he said, your forefathers, the Jewish nations just prior to this rejected that. He says, y'all crucified him. Uh, Again, they're probably not as happy now as they were when they began hearing this in As he talks about the testimony, they knew from Old Testament who Jesus was to be. And even in the New Testament, John the Baptist would testify. And he says in Matthew 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So they have Old Testament prophecy. They have testimony from New Testament people. This is Jesus. But yet they refuse to receive that. The leadership of Israel, he said, are the ones that cause the crucifixion. I love how he begins to describe it as he said that, you know, maybe they did it out of ignorance. That probably made them feel a little better. Yeah, our fathers didn't know exactly. But then he changes it and said it was still their fault. They should have known. They've read all the Old Testament. They read these sayings every day who tells them exactly what it is. And every week they hear who Jesus was supposed to be. And he's fulfilled everything up until that point that he should have been. But the Sanhedrin, the Israelite leaders, even though they could not prove their accusations of blasphemy against Jesus, they still asked Pilate to kill Jesus. Pilate could find nothing wrong with him, but the crowds began to yell and he didn't want an uproar, so he followed through with that. The three messianic passages that we're fixing to look at show that the resurrected Christ is the Messiah. And they would have known these. If you have your Bibles, let's look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Ones that he repeated that we were looking at in Scripture, but we're going to see where he pulled them from. said, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus was being prophesied even back in then. And we know that when John baptized Jesus in the water, the heavens opened up and proclaimed that that was his son. Let's look at Isaiah 55, 3. These are, again, some scriptures that they would have known. Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. God had made a covenant with David, and that covenant is being followed through with him. One other one, Psalm 1610. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You know, there is something different and something special about Jesus Christ. He went into the grave a dead man. 
but he come out through resurrection power, a live man. He is not in the ground decaying, as the scripture talks about. He's not there going away as John the Baptist or anyone else who has been buried in the grave. Well, you say Lazarus came out the grave alive. Yes, he did, but Lazarus went back in the grave, and he's still there. Jesus Christ has a testimony of its own through the crucifixion, the way it happened, what happened, but more than that, that he went into the grave and come out a resurrected person. He come out alive. That ought to tell you there's something different. By the power of God, he came out of that grave. So here, Paul, standing before the Jewish people and those who fear God, are in the synagogue. Well, we're fixing to have a change because now he's given them all the history, the genealogy. Now he's fixing to give them the invitation. Let's take a look. Verse 38, back in Acts 13, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Take heed so that nothing spoken of the prophets may come unto you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. He gives them the invitation, but I want you to notice. Let me read to you. It's not going to be on the screen, but let me read to you how this started. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren. If we go back over to verse 16, he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, there's two kinds of groups of people in this synagogue. You have the Jewish people that come to synagogue, and then you have those who fear God. or Some would call them proselytes. It would be Gentiles and other people who are in the process of converting. They're claiming God or Jesus as the one. They're beginning to turn toward what the Jewish people believe. But as Paul always does, he talks to the Jew first. And we read last week the scripture about the gospels for the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So Paul began here, therefore let it be known to you, brethren. He's speaking here first of all only to the Jewish people. And he says that forgiveness of sin is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He begins spelling out the invitation of the gospel. Secondly, not only is forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ, but freedom from all things for the believer. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for who? 
For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. God set up that sin causes separation. The only way back is through the death of his son. God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments and the other laws to follow. That law cannot save them. It shows them where they are wrong or where they have sinned, but the law cannot save them. The law told them how they could sacrifice animals and allow blood to be shed as a remission and to cover over their sins, but it wasn't permanent. They were constantly doing it. Can you imagine every time... You sinned, you had to sacrifice an animal. You'd have to bring it here and we would have to go through the ritual process of shedding the blood and sprinkling it around or releasing one of them and killing the other one. And then once a year, we would come together for a great time of sacrifice to cover those sins that maybe wasn't known about. But that day of atonement over and over again. But here he's saying that in Jesus, there's freedom. There's freedom from the law, whereas the law might condemn. In Jesus, there's freedom. When one accepts Jesus as the only Lord and Savior in their life, their sins are forgiven. And when there's no sin in your life, you can be connected to fellowship with Jesus Christ and God without any hindrances. There's no distance. We come back together. So he wants to give them the message of what this salvation is, this saving gospel, but he doesn't leave it there. He wants to give them some consequences if they choose not to receive that. Did you see there it said, take heed so that the things spoken in the prophets may not come upon you. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to begin reading to you from verse 5. It says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit. And with awful conviction, just as you know what kind of men were provided to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone, so that we may have no need for saying anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus Christ, who rescues us from the wrath to come. If you reject, he's telling them, Christ, there is wrath to come. What is that wrath? Number one, while we're living here on earth, that wrath is a separation from Jesus Christ. There's not going to be peace in your life. There's not going to be settle in your life. But ultimately the permanent separation 
from God living in the darkness and the agony and the anguish of hell itself. And yes, church, hell is a real place. I have been in a, I was going to say a church, but I'm going to pull that word off. I have been in a meeting of people that claim to be a church. When the preacher stood up to begin preaching, he began by saying, those of you who are members know what we believe. But if you're a guest here, I want to inform you what I believe. And he says, I believe there is no hell. He said, that is strictly something we use to scare our kids into heaven. I knew from that very moment I was in trouble for the next few moments. There is no hell. How sad for his people. There is a hell it is real, and it is agony. It's described in the Bible in different places as fire and brimstone. I wish I could find, and David, I might get with you and let you help me on this. I heard someone preaching one time on hell, and he began talking about the scientific research of fire and how at a certain temperature the fire would become liquid, and at another temperature the fire would become Black, there would be no light around. Temperatures far beyond what we could ever imagine. I believe that's what hell's going to be like. Not only is it dark because there's no light, it's dark because you are permanently and forever separated from the Lord. But anytime the invitation's given, there is a response. And we see that here in Acts 13 beginning in verse 44, says the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. And since you repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, for you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and in instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. My, my, how history repeats itself. Have you heard that? I was told that. Miss Jane, I remember something from history class. History repeats itself. We see it happening right here. The message brought first to the Jews. Same way it's always been. Message brought to the Jews. 
The Jews rejected. What did it say? I believe they're rejecting here out of their selfishness. It, it said the next day, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord, but the Jews saw the crowd and they became filled with jealousy. Here are two men proclaiming the freedom, life-saving gospel. And because they have a few more people coming to hear than come to hear you, they become jealous. You know, we see that sometimes today in the church. Preacher gets up and he preaches and he has some people, but he hears, you know, down the road there that, that church, you, did you hear how many people they had? And jealousy can kick in. Satan loves to come and divide when the gospel message is being spoke. The town came. What a joyous time it should have been. But just as it had been already spoken and as it happened before, the Jews, over their jealousy pride issue, just as in Jesus' day, rejected the gospel, wanted to change it. And guess what? When that happened, it opened the door for Paul to then to be able to share with the Gentiles. What happened with the Gentiles? They received it. They accepted it. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many had been appointed to eternal life and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. That's how you do it. You get on fire for God. You get saved and the gospel message spreads. You know, Luke knew Excuse me, Paul knew what the Jews were interested in, and Luke records in Acts about that genealogy. The Jews knew Old Testament scripture, and Paul used the truth to preach the gospel to them, and they rejected that gospel. What do we need to do when we share the gospel? believe we need to be like Paul. Paul knew those that he was sharing with what was important to them. That was their genealogy. And he started by sharing God's word in the genealogy. We need to know what's important to who we're sharing with and things going on. You know, the best time to share with someone the gospel is when something's going on in their life and you can step in and show how the gospel can help. What is the gospel message? It's the birth. And everyone in here, if I was to ask you, could you tell me something about the birth of Jesus Christ? Yeah, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. Other part of the gospel is the death. We know Jesus Christ hung on a cross. He died, and then the burial, he was put into the tomb. He was resurrected out, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on to the promise of his return. Every one of us in here has a testimony, and we must be about sharing the gospel. But, you know, even as Paul used what was important to them and they rejected him, if you're sharing, I want to remind you of this. doesn't matter what you do. It's Holy Spirit's job to do the work. And they might reject your message. But what I'm here to tell you today, they're not 
rejecting you. They're rejecting the gospel message. The genealogy of the gospel, in just a few short verses, Paul basically covers the entire Bible. Speaking to people who should already know, and then going to those who do not, he shared the birth, death, burial, and resurrection. Church, as hard as it is, in this day and time, we need to be about sharing the gospel. I know I've told y'all before, because I have to do it regularly, it's not easy. But our world is falling further and further away. And if those of us who do not have the message willing to share it, how are they going to hear? I want to just close with this that I, I heard this week. If you went to the doctor, the doctor ran some tests and he determined you had cancer. He brings you back in, but he knows that there is something he can do to help your cancer. Maybe he has a, a cure. But he doesn't share that with you. You know what he does is he, he says, you know, you're fine. That little bit of pain, it's no big deal. Just go on living life like you are and everything's fine. How many of you would want him for a doctor? Well, why not? You want him to share with you, number one, the truth. If he has something that can help you or cure you, would you want him to tell you? How many of you would want your doctor to tell you the truth? Come on, you raise your hand. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Why did the first doctor not tell the truth? He was afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. My question to you this morning, are you afraid of hurting someone's feelings here on earth and allow them to spend eternity in hell? Or can we get past our nervousness and do what we can to share the gospel? Majority of us, if not all of us sitting in the room, has the answer to life. And it's Jesus Christ. Are you going to keep it to yourself? Or do you love your friends and neighbors enough to share the message? May you bow your heads.